Welcome to It Was Almost Real, the Pro Wrestling Hit History Podcast, episode number six. Welcome to this episode of It Was Almost Real, the Pro Wrestling History Podcast. My name is Ken Zimmerman Jr., and this is a podcast dedicated to the history of professional wrestling between 1870 and 1920, although sometimes we'll even stretch into the 1930s. In this episode, I'll be walk- I will be talking about a pair of worked title matches for the American Heavyweight Wrestling Championship. But first, I'm recording this on Friday, July 1st, because I'm trying to get ahead on the recordings. And the, on this week's Jim Cornette drive-through, which I believe came out on uh, June 30th, they were talking about a segment from the previous experience where a wrestling fan from St. Louis had written in and talked about his grandparents were mentioning, or his grandparents received a letter that he found cleaning out their house, where a friend of theirs said, "Hey, we saw you." at the wrestling matches on TV on May 19, 1951. Well, the problem was twofold. One, uh, there was no wrestling cards on that date because the St. Louis wrestling at that time ran in seasons and they were off for the, the season. Both promotions were off for the season. And the other thing was they didn't get TV for a few more years. So it was a bit of a mystery and Jim Cornette said, you know, it, it could have been a wrestling show from somewhere else in the country. So I was sitting there and I'm like, well, I got 30 minutes before I got to go to the gym. And I still, because I used to research St. Louis history directly, I have a, the regular newspaper.com portal, but I used to be a subscriber only to the St. Louis Post-Dispatch and St. Louis Star-Times archive through newspapers.com. So I still go directly just to those two newspapers through that portal. And I remembered St. Louis Post-Dispatch often ran the TV listings for that day. So I went and looked it up quickly, and sure enough, there was a card from the Marigold Arena in Chicago. And that's a four- or five-hour trip from St. Louis to Chicago. And in the 1950s, that would have been a popular destination because cross-country travel wasn't as... Uh, widespread as it is today so we're pretty sure the the mystery is solved and Jim Cornette and Brian Lass were nice enough to acknowledge uh, me finding that for them for the show so I appreciate that I listen to both the drive-thru and the experience every week I find them very entertaining and I think it is the best pro wrestling history podcasts out there they cover modern stuff they cover uh prior events as well and Jim is a fantastic historian he's forgotten more than most people will know but Brian Lass is not shabby either and is a good host so I know some people won't listen to Jim Cornette because they don't like his views on modern wrestling but you don't have to agree with everything everybody says but he says it in a very entertaining way and there is some credence well there's 
quite a bit of credence at times to some of those criticisms and he takes I think more criticism from AEW fans than WWE fans um, because the WWE product is boring and juvenile the pay-per-views are a little bit better than the shows and then with AEW it's a mixed bag you get really good segments and you get other segments that aren't as good but I think that will improve with time Tony Khan was a very inexperienced pro wrestling executive like no experience when he started AEW and it'll just take time it has gotten better and I root for them because I would like to see a competitor to help make the WWE product better so I recommend the podcast if you can't listen to them because you don't want to hear criticism I get it but I like the shows so this episode's uh, main contact content that's easy for me to say today I don't know why I'm tripping over all these words but the main content for today's show is a pair of worked matches in 1906 between the American heavyweight wrestling champion Frank Gotch and a very uh, skilled but very small wrestler by the name of Fred Beal. If Fred Beal had been bigger, he would have probably been one of the top wrestlers along with Gotch and Tom Jenkins and George Hackenschmidt in the first decade or so of the 20th century. But his lack of size often hampered him in matches with world-class wrestlers. He wrestled a lot of legitimate contests. He also worked matches as well. So although Beal was powerfully built, and in the show notes at KenZimmermanJr.com, episode 6, I'll have a picture of Beal in there. You can see he had a bodybuilder's physique. But he was very generously listed at five foot six. I think it's probably closer to five three, five foot four, and he never exceeded 170 pounds. I'd say he was probably 160 pounds most of the time, which five four, 160 pounds is a big person, but they're not tall, and they're not going to be able to match up with a, a true heavyweight. Frank Gotch stood five eleven, and most of the time weighed between 190 and 200 pounds. So there's a huge size disparity between the two men. But on Saturday, December 1st, 1906, Beal met Frank Gotch in New Orleans for the American Heavyweight Wrestling Championship. Gotch had just won the title back in 1905 from Tom Jenkins, and at this point in time, he looked pretty much unbeatable. He was getting so dominant that it was getting hard to get fans to come out to watch the matches because Unless they just wanted to see the greatness of Gotch, they just figured they were going to come out and see somebody get squashed. So, what happens oftentimes in these situations, because you have to remember, in professional wrestling, the number one goal is to draw as much money as possible. So, in late 1906, Farmer Burns, uh, Gotch's manager, Mel Clank, and Gotch, I'm speculating here. This has never been written down anywhere. But I think they got together and said, we've got to do something to make people think that you can be beaten or we're not going to be able to draw anything in this upcoming year. 
So in this December 1st match where he was going to wrestle, wrestle Fred Beal. And the match took place at the Greenwall Theater in New Orleans. Gotch was listed at, for the match at 202 pounds while Beal weighed 168. And the match was pretty exciting, which is the first clue that it might have been a work. A lot of legitimate contests were pretty boring to watch. So Gotch and Beal spend the first 10 minutes of the match trying to gain an offensive advantage. Each time they go to the mat, it's Gotch who's on top. And he was frequently trying to grab a toehold, but Beal had these short, powerful legs, which made it very hard for him to secure his toehold. After several failed attempts, Gotch starts to look frustrated, visibly. When the men, each time the men would come to their feet after he started looking frustrated, Gotch would lift Beal and drop him to the mat. And once he dropped Beal straight on his head, but Beal wasn't injured. And this is keeping in character for Gotch. Gotch was known to freely follow his opponents to win his matches. He didn't do it necessarily just because he was vicious like an Evan Strangler Lewis. It was part of his plan to win a match. They wrestle evenly for about 30 minutes until Gotch secures a head scissors. Using the scissors and armbar, Gotch takes uh, Beal to the floor and pins him. So the first fall goes to Gotch after 30 minutes. And then the men left for the ring for the normal 10-minute intermission. So far, everything, it looks like it could be legitimate. There's nothing out of the, out of the ordinary that's happened yet. So then they start the second fall. Beal took the offensive to start the second fall and slammed Gotch several times. And Gotch appears to be visibly fatiguing, which is unusual for him. He, did, he was not known for having poor cardio. Beal picks Gotch up again, but stumbles, and both men fall off the mat onto the hard floor. Gotch hits heavily around the head area. Beal himself was not seriously hurt, and he quickly turns Gotch over for the second fall. Light heavyweight wrestler Charlie Olson, who served as a referee for this match, tapped Beal on his back, indicating Beal took the second fall. I'm not quite sure why they didn't stop the match for a second when they fell out. So, Gotch, in his autobiography, which came out seven or eight years after this match, claimed he struck his head on a ring post. But they weren't in a ring for this match. So back in this era, prior to the 1920s, in the 1920s, from then on, matches almost always occurred in a wrestling ring. But in the 1900s, matches rarely occurred in a ring. They occurred on mats that would be put on a stage area, elevated so the fans could see. Uh, rings were unusual. Uh, they Rings didn't... Rings like a boxing ring didn't start getting used until the 19-teens, and then it wasn't widespread until 1920s. 
Well, the problem is this match didn't take place in a ring. So if he hit his head and there were stanchions around the mat, he could have struck one of those, but none of the newspaper coverage talks about that. They talk about him striking his head heavily on the floor. Now, Gotch could have forgotten in the ensuing years. Uh, wrestlers don't always have the best memories. But whatever happened, he struck his head hard outside of the ring area. Why the wrestler would allow the other... I'm sorry, why the referee would allow Beal just to flip him over and pin him. He had to flip him back into the ring, but I don't know why he would do that without checking on Gotch. Um, because the rules are a little fuzzy there when something like that happens. After Gotch appears to strike his head and Beal pins the unconscious Gotch, Gotch remains on the mat and Two New Orleans police officers who were providing security for the event had to help carry Gotch back to the dressing room for the second intermission. Gotch was given 20 minutes to recover from hitting his head, but it wasn't enough as this, the police officers had to help him back to the ring. As soon as the match was restarted, Beale picks up Gotch, drops him to the mat, and pins him in 50 seconds. So Fred Beal is now the new American heavyweight wrestling champion. I was suspicious of this match from the first time I read the accounts in the newspaper and then reading the account in Gotch's autobiography. It all seemed fanciful. Gotch makes it sound like he ran headfirst into a ring post and that's what knocked him silly. The newspapers clearly say it was because Beal stumbled while holding him up and he fell and landed on his head awkwardly. And then the third thing that made me go, ah, or made me think that this was, this was a pair of worked matches, was Gotch already had a rematch scheduled 17 days later in Kansas City. Now, the fact that he lost the title to Beal probably paid off in the tickets because the match in Kansas City drew 8,000 fans to the convention hall. The convention hall would hold up to 10,000, but it wasn't that usual to get that big a crowd. But Kansas City was a good town for wrestling. But 8,000 fans showed up. So if they were trying to get interest back in people coming to Gotch's matches, it seems to have worked. And Gotch, of course, when he got to Kansas City, claimed the loss was a fluke, while Beal said he was going to beat Gotch decisively this time, and there would be no doubt about who was the best. The Kansas City crowd strongly uh, supported Frank Gotch, but he wrestled defensively at first. Beal charged Gotch frequently, yet he was really ineffective. After about 10 minutes, Beal, either through impatience or because this was a work match, lunges at Gotch for the first time without securing a hold. Gotch just slipped it and dropped him to the mat and grabbed his 
crotch hold on Half Nelson, which was his second favorite uh, move. But Beal is roll, rolls around and gets gets away. As soon as he gets away, Beal jumps in for a headlock that he looks like he might actually use to get a takedown. But Gotch grabs Beal's ankles and flips Beal over his shoulders. Beal lands on his head and appears dazed. Gotch pinned Beal then with the English cross hold at 19 minutes 16 seconds. And normally the intermissions were 10 to 20 minutes, but they had a boxing bout between the first and second falls of this match. So Beal had almost 13 minutes to recover. So for the next 35 minutes of that second fall, Gotch went for the toe hold continuously. And Beal was able to push off of each attempt, but Gotch just kept grabbing, just kept grabbing, just kept grabbing for the toe hold. And he was doing it to lull Beal into a false sense of security because after he had got out of so many toe holds, Gotch again secured a crotch hold in half Nelson, and this time he was able to turn Beal onto his shoulders. Gotch won his title back in two straight falls, and the second fall took him 38 minutes and 16 seconds. So the first question I asked about these matches, because I believe they were worked, was why didn't Gotch let Beal have a fall back when he took the title back? Why did he beat him in two straight falls? Because in beating him in so dominant a fashion, it looks like that first match was a fluke. And so if the first match was a fluke, then Gotch is just as unbeatable as he's always been. And you might still have the same challenge with getting fans to show up and pay to see somebody they think is just going to wreck whoever he's in the ring with. And my only answer for that is Gotch had a huge ego. And maybe he wanted to make sure that people knew that this little wrestler couldn't beat him. And on, on that score, if the matches were a contest, I'm sure that Beal couldn't beat him. I'm sure that's why Gotch was comfortable dropping the title back or dropping the title to him because if Beal didn't want to give it back, Gotch would just take it from him. Years uh, after I had written the first time where I said I thought these were a work, I was reading Luthez's autobiography and he referred to this series of matches as business matches, meaning they were worked and Gotch dropped the title to, to Beal under controversial circumstances and then took it back three weeks later. And remember, everything that goes on in wrestling, whether it's works in this, this era or any era of professional wrestling, the number one goal for the promoters and wrestlers is to draw as much money as they possibly can. So everything they do, whether they do it well or they do it poorly, is an attempt to lure more fans to come to the arenas to pay the tickets now it's you're wanting to sell pay-per-views or you're wanting to get TV ratings as much as you want a gate. Pay-per-view is much more lucrative than a live gate. But in this day and age, there none of that was available. So wrestlers and promoters made their money by getting people to come out and pay to see them. And so at least in the short run, 
this title switch was successful. 8,000 fans showing up. That was a very nice gate for Beal and Gotch to split. But you can see in 1906, when many of the matches were contests, you have worked matches. You have worked matches going back to the 1870s. As far back as I have researched professional wrestling, there were work matches. There were more contests in the 19th century, and then between 1900 and 1915, you have more of a transition period, where I'd say maybe they're not even, but they're getting close. And then after 1915, contests are a rarity. Most contests are double crosses or agreed upon shoots to settle promotional issues. Contests are an exception and in the modern day they, they don't exist. A lot of people, what people will call shoots are just wrestlers getting mad at each other and not cooperating. The outcome of the match is not going to change because if they do that they're gone. The promoter's not going to keep them around. So nobody really goes into business for themselves if they did, the, the referee would disqualify them and then the owner would fire them immediately. Probably after doing a package, telling everybody what a louse they were because they tried to go in for business for themselves and hurt their friend. I think that I may have beaten this subject to death, but I just want, when you listen to it, the reason I call it, it was almost real, is because there were always worked matches along with the contests in the legitimate era. So there was never this pristine time that we all think about that wrestling matches were contests. And if you were back if you were back in that day, you probably wouldn't enjoy the contest because they could be very long stalemates with not a whole lot of action. So before I close out the episode this week, I've been watching the old Mid-South uh, shows on the Peacock Network, and I I really like Mid-South Wrestling as a whole, but I'm starting to see that there were holes in it at different times. So we got Mid-South right before they switched to UWF in 86 in St. Louis. I think that's when we got it in syndication. And I really liked the show. It, it reminded me of the first time I had seen the world-class shows in 82. But the problem, just like the world-class show, the quality of the promotion is uneven. It's not like it's great from 81 to 85. It was very good in some periods, particularly 84. Mid-South in 84 is really hard to beat. But then you have down periods at the end of 83. In 85, it's like they went from getting a combination of big guys and guys that could work back to we're going to be a big man territory. And the matches aren't as good. There was a great match between Ted DiBiase and Butch Reed I saw the other day who had started in St. Louis as Bruce Reed. He had been a football player for the Central Missouri football team. And then he had... a maybe played a year or two, I think, uh, as a bench player for the Kansas City Chiefs. But he was a big star in St. Louis, and I think that Bill Watts probably knew how to use Junkyard Dog, Hacksaw, 
Jim Duggan, Hacksaw Butch Reed. He knew how to, Dr. Dusty Williams, he knew how to use these talents better than anybody else they were with because I didn't think much of Junkyard Dog because I had only ever seen him in WWE. I didn't see the matches in 81 and 82 where he was such a, a phenom. And it's the same thing with Hacksaw Jim Duggan. I really didn't get why everybody thought he was so great because right when we got the Mid-South, he was gone as well. He had gone to New York. But I think when you're a wrestling fan from the 70s and the early 80s, you have a tendency to put these rose-colored glasses on about the territories, and you think it all made sense all the time, and it was all good all the time. And that's not the case either. There are, are periods. I've said I was a huge fan of world-class championship wrestling. We got the Von Erichs in St. Louis from the time that they started wrestling. So when we got the world-class show, I loved it. I was a big fan of the Von Erichs already from their time in St. Louis. But if you watch those shows, 82 is kind of a down year. Then the Freebirds get there and Jimmy Garvin and Chris Adams and it, uh, Iceman King Parsons, and it explodes. Uh, the Super Destroyers, you just got a lot of younger guys that can go that are in that territory, and it's really good. And then early in 1984, David Von Erich dies, and that promotion starts to kind of tail off a little bit. And then by 86, it's not a very good show anymore. So I don't think that the, the territory days were as good as we remember them. I think that they had their ups and downs as well. Now, I've said before, I did not like the original WWF. I liked the WWF in the 90s with Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels and Steve Austin and The Undertaker and Mankind. But in the 80s, I thought it was comic book wrestling. I didn't like it. It wasn't what I grew up on in St. Louis. And I probably would have still hated it and never gave it a chance in the 90s if it wasn't for primetime wrestling, Bobby the Brain Heenan, and Gorilla Monsoon. So you can view the show notes for this episode at KenZermanJr.com, episode number six. The next episode, which will be released on Monday, August 8th, I will discuss the first mass wrestler in the United States, the Mass Marvel, who saved the fall version of the 1915 New York International Wrestling Tournament. I first became aware of the Mass Marvel, listened to Larry Matisic do commentary on Wrestling at the Chase in St. Louis, and I always wanted to research the mass marvel and I was both fascinated and disappointed after doing so so that'll be the next episode kenzermanjr.com is the place to check out the show notes for today's episode you can also see what I'm working on currently in a list of books I've written if you are interested in digging deeper into this era of professional wrestling thank you for listening today I would also be grateful if you would rate this podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to the show that helps tremendously with keeping the podcast visible so people who have never heard of it can discover it. If you've already done this, thank you so much. And if you would like to comment on this episode or ask a question, please go to kenzermanjr.com, find the contact page at the top navigation, and drop me an email. I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, take care, everybody. Bye.